Turn with me to Psalm 119. Psalm 119, as we pursue further the deceitful delusions that our wicked and foolish hearts tell us and which lies we often believe that keep us from serving the Lord with our whole heart. Psalm 119, verse 113. I hate vain thoughts, but thy law do I love. Amen. We are able to generate vain thoughts very easily, frequently, and we are to hate them. It's easy for us to think the thoughts here might be the thoughts of Pope Benedict XVI. They might be the thoughts of some 33rd degree Mason. They might be the thoughts of the chairman of the Federal Reserve Board. But that's putting the thoughts too far away from us. How about the ones that we have that need to be brought into captivity to the obedience of Christ? I hate vain thoughts. And the vain thoughts we should hate the most are the ones we have. But thy law do I love. That's how we find out if our thoughts are vain. We measure all our thoughts by the infallible word of God. We look into the perfect mirror of God's Word and measure all of our thoughts by what we find there. The man that does that and continues in those things will be blessed in the deed. I hear someone say, well, I'm not living all out for the Lord right now, and I, I know I'm somewhat of a carnal Christian. But others that don't live as strictly as you preach, they seem to be doing fine. The person that says that, I'm not living all out for the Lord because others that don't live as strictly as you teach seem to be doing fine. They're forgetting a few things. How do they know that those that are living a loose, lascivious life are even children of God? They're making assumptions they cannot prove. How do they know the judgment of God is not about to fall on those persons? That while they look like they're doing fine at the moment, that the judgment of God is about to fall upon them. How do they know and how do you know that leanness of soul has not already captured their hearts? That they seem to be doing well outwardly, but inside they have a lean soul toward the things of the Lord. Look at Psalm 73, which has already been referred to in this assembly, but let's look at it. Psalm 73, it's a psalm by Asaph. David's song leader. And he was deluded himself by such thinking. Others that don't live this strictly seem to be doing right well. They're having their heaven here. Don't forget it. We have ours later. But if you put your sights and affection on heaven later, he'll give you joy in your heart now. Even in the face of horrible circumstances, you can still be very happy in the Lord. Asaph has an extended soliloquy here of his confusion and discouragement and delusion by the prosperity of the wicked. He explains in verse 2, before he gets into it, that his feet were almost gone. His steps had well nigh slipped. He had truly wandered off and out of the way of righteousness because he was misunderstanding the prosperity of the wicked. Here's what he said. Verse 3, I was envious of the foolish. When I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for there are no bands in their death, but their strength is firm. 
They are not in trouble as other men. Neither are they plagued like other men. Therefore pride compasseth them about as a chain. Violence covereth them as a garment. Their eyes stand out with fatness. They have more than heart could wish. They are corrupt and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue walketh through the earth. Therefore his people return hither, and waters of a full cup are wrung out to them. And they say, How doth God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the ungodly who prosper in the world. They increase in riches. Verily I have cleansed my heart in vain, and washed my hands in innocency. For all the day long have I been plagued and chastened every morning. This is how this man's steps slipped. This is how his feet were almost gone. He looked at the prosperity of the wicked and said there is no reason to live a strict and severe godly life. I've washed my hands in vain because they never wash their hands in vain. They never wash their hands at all. They live in sin and look at how prosperous they are. So see, here's a delusion on David's song leader. He deceived his own heart by seeing their prosperity that they don't struggle with troubles like godly men. Verse 15, he's, he's narrating his own story. If I say I will speak thus, behold, I should offend against the generation of my children. If I would talk this way openly, you know, I would offend the generation of God's people. When I thought to know this, it was too painful for me. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then understood I their end. And those are the words Brother Eric used with you just a few minutes ago. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then understood I their end. The reason we come into the sanctuary of God is to be reminded that delusions like Asaph was suffering under are wrong. That there is an end to those wicked and the end that they're going to experience more than makes up for all the apparent pleasures and prosperity they seem to enjoy now. Verse 18, Surely thou didst set them in slippery places. Thou castest them down into destruction. How are they brought into desolation? As in a moment. They are utterly consumed with terrors. As a dream when one awaketh, so, O Lord, when thou awakest, Thou shalt despise their image. God does not sleep. But it appears that he's sleeping because he's not judging the wicked as quickly as we believe the Bible teaches or as quickly as we think he should. But he's got his ultimate glory in mind when he shows his long suffering even to the wicked. Because his wrath mounts up to the heavens before he drops his hammer on them. He let the nations of Canaan excel in their wickedness. And he said the land was about ready to vomit them out before he annihilated them. The Lord doesn't sleep. It appears that he sleeps. But then the Lord awakes and he despises their image. That is the horrifying end of the wicked. But Asaph had forgotten about it until he went into the sanctuary. And that's why we come into the sanctuary. You go to work with them. You drive into your subdivisions beside them. They don't seem to have troubles like other men. They're prospering in the world. These are the wicked. But there's an end for them. And that end is God will despise them. Amen. Verse 21, he explains, Thus my heart was grieved and I was pricked in my reins. He was convicted that what he had been thinking was a delusion. 
And that's the way we ought to be whenever we identify a delusion that we allow ourselves to think about. We should be grieved in our hearts. We should be pricked in our reins. So foolish was I and ignorant. I was as a beast before thee. This is proper language in talking to God that my thoughts were like the thoughts of an animal. All I was doing was recognizing natural things on this earth. I had forgot about heaven and spiritual things. Nevertheless, verse 23, I am continually with thee. Thou hast holden me by my right hand. I have a relationship with God. And though, in certain respects, the wicked may appear to prosper more than me in the world, I have God with me, holding me by my hand. Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel, and afterward receive me to glory, instead of despising him like he would the wicked. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside thee. My flesh and my heart faileth, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For lo, they that are far from thee shall perish. Thou hast destroyed all them that go a-whoring from thee. But it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all thy works. It is a good thing for me to draw near to God. Though I was confused for a moment, though I was as ignorant as a beast... For a few hours, when I looked at the prosperity of the wicked, I went into the sanctuary. Then I understood their end. God is going to awake and despise their image and destroy them. They're having their heaven now. But he said, Whom have I in heaven but thee? And to have you as my companion and drawing nigh to me, I'm going to draw nigh to you. And this is how we respond to such a delusion. There's a great day of adjustment coming. All the books will be reconciled, and they'll all be put into balance. And the God of heaven will be magnified in that day. And sin and wickedness will be punished more severe than we can imagine. And the righteous will be exalted forever as the children of God in heaven. Do not listen to such a lie that others that are not living as strictly seem to be doing right well. Because the time is coming for their comeuppance, and it will come from the Lord. I hear someone say, I can't really do any better than I'm doing. I'm doing the best I can. Can't you just be content with what I'm doing? Don't push me, because I'm doing the best I can. These are usually excuses for slothfulness. Godly men know they can always do more. The Apostle Paul was always pressing further, farther, faster to win his race in the prize for the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. This delusion leads to men resenting those who exhort them and press them to do better. They don't want to be exhorted. They don't want exhorters around them. Because they've made up their mind that they're doing about as well as they want to, or about as well as they can. By logical consequence... This means that this delusion blames God for requiring more out of them than they can give. But God has never required more out of anyone than they can give. 1 Corinthians 10.13 tells me, There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that she may be able to bear it. God doesn't require more out of you than you can give Him. I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me, is what the Apostle said. 
God is not moved by what you consider the difficulty of living the Christian life. Because Jesus identified the difficulty of living the Christian life this way. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's how he defines the difficulty. We make it difficult. Look at Job chapter 6 as Job tries to describe what a terrible situation he was in. And we will grant that the Lord did try him. But there is an attitude that we ought to have that was better than Job's. That is better than Job's. God is not moved by our afflictions like other men might be. In Job 6 and verse 5, Job said, Doth the wild ass bray when he hath grass? Or loweth the ox over his fodder? Listen, the reason I'm howling, he's telling his friends, is because my life is so bad. Because I can't bear up under what's happening to me. A wild ass doesn't bray when he's eating. Or when he has lots of grass, he brays when he doesn't have it. And Job's saying, the reason I'm braying, the reason I'm making such a noise, is because it's so hard for me. That's Job 6 and verse 5. Chapter 12. Job 12 and verse 5. Job 12, 5. He that is ready to slip with his feet is as a lamp despised in the thought of him that is at ease. I'm about ready to slip and you guys are picking on me because you're at ease. You know, look at the problems that I'm in. Job is magnifying his affliction. For two chapters, he blessed the Lord and did not charge God foolishly, nor did he lift himself up as being a righteous man. Chapter 16 and verse 4. Chapter 16, verse 4. I also could speak as ye do. If your soul were in my soul's stead, I could heap up words against you and shake mine head at you. You know, if the roles were reversed, I could treat you as meanly as you're treating me. What's the solution? Come over to chapter 38. Don't you tell me your situation's too hard, but most of all, don't tell yourself that your situation is too hard. Don't lie to yourself that your situation is too hard to serve the Lord, and too much is expected out of you. Job was enduring quite a trial. But here's how the Lord opened up his conversation with him in Job chapter 38, the first three verses. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up now thy loins like a man, for I will demand of thee, and answer thou me. God doesn't, it doesn't sound like the Lord's feeling too sorry for Job here. Not sorry at all. And yet, there was quite a deal of affliction put on Job. But Job was able to endure it. He proved that in chapters 1 and 2. And he could have continued to do so if he had humbled himself and not thought himself so righteous. But here's how the Lord answers such a man. You're talking without knowledge. Now gird up your loins like a man and answer me. Because I want to ask you a few questions. And then he goes on to explain the great difference between God and Job. Don't let yourself tell yourself that the Christian life is too hard for you. Because the Lord's going to say, gird up your loins like a man. I have a few questions to ask you. 
Even in Job's circumstances, God expected more out of Job. And in your circumstances, which will never even get close to Job's, the Lord expects more out of you. Don't lie to yourself that you can't do it. The best attitude you can have when you feel weak is to say it with Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, My grace is sufficient for thee. For when I am weak, then am I strong. Because God's strength is made perfect in weakness. That's how, that's the attitude you ought to have when you feel that the Christian life is too hard for you. Someone will say, but I'm not as bad as some scriptural heroes. I'm not as bad as David. I'm not as bad as Job. I'm not as bad as Peter. And they use the Bible to justify their slothfulness or their sin. Job was guilty of self-justification. David was guilty of adultery and murder. Peter was guilty of denying the Lord. When you, when you bring that delusion up, or if you ever hear anyone bringing that delusion up, I'm not as bad as some scriptural heroes, let me remind you a few things about those scriptural heroes. Don't forget the misery that those men endured because of their sin. Those men endured horrible misery. Peter went out and wept bitterly. David suffered for it the rest of his life. Job was miserable. Don't forget the repentance that these men found when they were rebuked. Because if you're going to say that you're not as bad as some scriptural heroes, then show us that you are like those scriptural heroes by matching their repentance. Job's repentance... At the, in the last few chapters of Job was significant. So significant that God told Job's three friends, you're going to have to get him to pray for you. You know, I'll hear his prayer, but I won't hear yours. Because Job found repentance. And David found repentance. That the Lord forgave him on the spot. And his prayer of repentance in Psalm 51 is beautiful to read. Peter's repentance was glorified as he told the Lord Jesus Christ, you know that I love you. And as the Lord Jesus Christ put him in charge of the apostles, uh, before the day of Pentecost, Peter stood up among the, tw- the eleven and directed them as to what they should do in replacing Judas. Make sure, if you're going to compare yourself to the heroes of the Bible that sinned, that you also have their repentance to match. Don't forget that those sins that you are bringing up about these three men were isolated events in otherwise very godly and zealous lives. Don't forget that. If you want to compare yourself by that measure, then we'll consider it. But don't just go and look at their sins and say, I'm not any worse than some of the heroes in the Bible. Don't be guilty of perverting Scripture that God's given to teach the very opposite of the way you're using. You are messing with His Word. Don't claim Paul's losing battle with sin in Romans chapter 7, if you think that's what Romans 7 is teaching that Paul was having a losing battle with sin, when Paul got to the end of his life, he could say, I have kept the faith, I have fought a good fight, I have finished my course. As long as you can agree with those three things, we'll let you look at Romans 7 as describing your character as well. But don't just get part of Paul's life or one of his explanations when he's speaking about the purpose of the law. Get his whole life. Godliness... And acceptance with God requires a broken heart, not a justifying one. If you want peace with God and to draw nigh to Him, it's to have a broken heart 
and a contrite spirit, not one that defends yourself or compares yourself to the sins of Bible heroes. Another delusion. Don't listen to it. Even if it comes up in your own heart. Turn to Jeremiah 37. Some of you would have read this last evening. Jeremiah 37, we did at our house. Of the four chapters I gave you that could be read last evening in preparation. Here's the delusion. I don't think God's going to punish me. I just don't think God's going to punish me. In things natural and in things spiritual, we usually think that it's going to happen to the other guy, not to us. The automobile accidents happen to the other guy because their reflexes just aren't quick as ours. They're the ones that get sickness because they just don't have the gene pool that I've got. And on and on we reason, we may not even put it into words, but we just think it's going to happen to someone else. It's not going to happen to us. This delusion exaggerates God's mercy and love to exclude His justice and His judgment. This delusion looks at God as being more loving and more merciful than He is just and than He does judge sin. In Jeremiah chapter 37, Jeremiah had been telling the people of Israel in the city of Jerusalem that the king of Babylon was going to come and destroy them. And they had this delusion among themselves in verse 9. Thus saith the Lord, Deceive not yourselves, saying, The Chaldeans shall surely depart from us, for they shall not depart. The delusion in Israel was that the Babylonians were going to go back home. And it was a long way back to Babylon from Jerusalem. And for a while, the Lord even allowed a set of circumstances that made it appear like their prophets might have been telling the truth. Because Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, brought his army up to defend Israel against the Babylonians, and the Chaldeans fled. But only for a while. And that was a deception for them to say, in verse 9, the Chaldeans shall surely depart from us. They're going to go back home. We're not going to be punished. The Lord says, for they shall not depart. And then, verse 10, is just too good to overlook. This is the way the Lord looks at such delusions. Here's what he says to the Israelites that thought the Chaldeans were going to depart and they weren't going to judge Jerusalem according to Jeremiah's prophecy. For though ye had smitten the whole army of the Chaldeans that fight against you, and there remained but wounded men among them, yet should they rise up every man in his tent and burn this city with fire. If the Lord says that the Chaldeans are going to punish a city, and you see the Chaldeans run away from Pharaoh and his army, that means they're coming back. Because if the Lord says the Chaldeans are going to destroy Jerusalem, they're coming back to destroy it. And the Lord said, though you went out to battle with them, and all that was left were wounded soldiers lying on their sick beds. The wounded soldiers are going to get up off their sick beds and come and burn your city. Because the word of the Lord said it. Don't you think that you can get away with any sin that God has spoken against? And God has spoken against all sin. Marriage is honorable in all, and the bed undefiled. But adulterers and whoremongers, God will 
judge. He that curseth his father or his mother, his lamp shall be put out in obscurity. Try it. You want to sit in your room and say something evil about your mother or your father? You say, well, I've done it before and nothing's happened yet. I promise you that I'll have the last laugh with the Lord and every righteous man in here will have the last laugh with the Lord because you will be punished. Your lamp shall be put out in obscurity. Obscure darkness. Don't lie against what the Bible teaches. Last night I reminded my children that the Bible says long life is dependent upon obeying and honoring your parents. You can get the best doctor, take your vitamins, eat three squares a day that have leafy green vegetables in them. Eat lots of fruit, exercise, go to bed on time. But do you know what long life is determined according to the Word of God? By the way you treat your parents. Don't lie against the Word of God. Because even if you were to go to battle against the Lord and all there is left is wounded soldiers lying on sick beds, those wounded soldiers are going to get up and punish you. This is the word of the Lord. Right. Israel thought, they're going to go away. We're not going to be punished. Oh, they should have listened to Jeremiah. Did you read the chapter? Whoever read the chapter last night, did Jeremiah get out of town? Why did Jeremiah get out of town? Because he knew they were coming back. Right. Now, the Lord had other plans for him. So he was captured. They accused him of betraying Israel and being a treasonous and joining the Chaldeans. They brought him back, put him in prison. You read the rest of the chapter. But did God take care of Jeremiah? Because he tried to leave the city of Jerusalem. Did the Lord take care of him? Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, said, take care of that man. Right. Praise the Lord. In the midst of total destruction, Jeremiah gets singled out for the care of God. Don't you ever say, my sin isn't going to be punished. In Jeremiah, look at chapter 23. If you want a very interesting study in the Bible, go to Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel and look for the delusions that those people operated under in order to reject the preaching of Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. They deluded themselves with so many lies in order to reject the preaching of those three men. Right. Jeremiah 23. God warned Israel about the deceit of their prophets in verse 17 of chapter 23. They say still unto them that despise me, the Lord hath said, ye shall have peace. And they say unto everyone that walketh after the imagination of his own heart, no evil shall come upon you. This is what the false teachers were telling the Jews. No evil's going to come upon you. Ye shall have peace, even though they're walking according to the imagination of their own heart. And so I'm saying to each of you, and I'm saying to myself, we cannot walk according to the imagination of our heart. We must walk according to the words of God's scriptures. Amen. Otherwise, we're lying to ourselves as foolishly as these false teachers were lying to Israel. Judah. This was Jeremiah 23, 17, the false prophet saying, you're going to have peace. And we just read in Jeremiah 37 that the Lord said, I don't care if you wounded, if they're all that was left of the Chaldean army were wounded men, you're going to be punished. They'll rise up and burn the city. If you want to start playing with little lies like that, that the Lord's not going to punish you, the Lord will deceive you. Jeremiah chapter 4 and verse 10. 
the Lord is in the business of giving self-deceivers the rope to hang themselves. If, if you want to play that you can get away with something God has said you can't get away with, the Lord will deceive you and you may end up believing yourself and not even being able to recover yourself from the lie that you've believed. Jeremiah chapter 4 and verse 10, Then, I, then said I, Ah, Lord God, surely thou hast greatly deceived this people in Jerusalem, saying, Ye shall have peace, whereas the sword reacheth unto the soul. Jeremiah knew the truth. The sword of Babylon was coming upon the Jews. But these people had believed otherwise, and the Lord had allowed these false teachers to get away with it, and the Lord had allowed these false teachers to be successful. Look at Ezekiel 14. This is what I'm talking about. Do you have an idol in your heart? Is there anything in your heart that you have valued above God and His Word? Anything. It is an idol in your heart. It is a stumbling block of iniquity. It causes you to trip and fall and be less than God expects you to be. If you have something like your heart and you protect it, God Himself will deceive you. Ezekiel chapter 14, I'll start at verse 6. There's a lengthy context around it, but this is, in, this is consistent with the context. I start at 6. Ezekiel has men coming to meet him and wanting to know the word of God from him. But the Lord tells Ezekiel, these men are not sincere. They have idols already set up in their hearts, and they have stumbling blocks of iniquity already in their hearts. We come to verse 6. Therefore say unto the house of Israel, Thus saith the Lord God, Repent, and turn yourselves from your idols, and turn away your faces from all your abominations. For every one of the house of Israel, or of the stranger that sojourneth in Israel, which separateth himself from me, and setteth up his idols in his heart, and putteth the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face, and cometh to a prophet to inquire of him concerning me, I, the Lord, will answer him by myself. And I will set my face against that man, and will make him a sign and a proverb. And I will cut him off from the midst of my people, and ye shall know that I am the Lord. And if the prophet be deceived, when he hath spoken a thing, I, the Lord, have deceived that prophet. And I will stretch out my hand upon him, and will destroy him from the midst of my people Israel. And they shall bear the punishment of their iniquity. The punishment of the prophet shall be even as the punishment of him that seeketh unto him. And it goes on to describe, if you play with spiritual adultery, if you play with spiritual adultery and you have some little thing that you love in your life that you're not willing to give up for the cause of Jesus Christ, if you're not willing to give it up for the Lord, some little idol in your life, the Lord will deceive you. Even if you come to a prophet to inquire about the word of the Lord, because he knows you're not sincere, so he owes you nothing. You've already chosen to believe a lie, so he gives you what you're pursuing. I, the Lord, will deceive that prophet. And then I will punish both the prophet and the one that came to him for their sins. That is sober, sober scripture about having an idol in our hearts or a stumbling block of iniquity before our faces. We see it. We know that it's there, but we refuse to get rid of it because it's more important to us than serving the Lord fully. Are there any idols in your hearts? Things that you are protecting that you know that an all-out pursuit of the Lord Jesus Christ means that needs to be thrown out. 
Is there anything that you're keeping like that? It's an idol. And it leads to your deception. I don't believe God's going to punish me. Be not deceived. What silver man soweth, that shall he also reap. But I can always repent when I want to. Ever done that one? I think I'm going to go ahead and sin. When I get my pleasure out of this sin, I'll, I'll repent for it. That's a pretty presumptuous sin, wouldn't you say? I would say that's going to take quite a bit of repentance to find forgiveness with the Lord when you go into it with such a wicked spirit. But I can always repent when I want to change. This lie assumes several other lies that you've got lots of time. Because what if you get caught between the sin and your repentance? It's curtains. So you're lying to your You understand? I'll repent. I can always repent when I, when I want to change. But I'd like to try it for a while. I'd like to try sin for a, a season. Then I'll repent. This lie says you've got time. This lie presumes on God's mercy that he'll forgive you for such a presumptuous thing. And this lie, most of all, doesn't understand repentance. Repentance is a whole lot harder to get than you think it is. If you think repentance is easy, you don't know real repentance. Because real repentance is a soul-crutching, mind-rejecting, heart-purifying change in your whole attitude and life. It affects your whole being. It affects every part of your life. And that is not easy to come by. The Lord owes it to no one. Paul told Timothy that even if Timothy was a perfect minister in 2 Timothy 2, 23 and 24, it was still up to God if he peradventure would grant repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. That is why we say in this church, and we say it often, if you feel conviction, or if you feel and or, or, or are convicted that you ought to repent, flee, get, leave this room if you need to, and go get yourself in a closet and repent and pour out your heart to the Lord and show Him your broken spirit because you are being shown a token of His love when you are convicted in your heart about a sin in your life. It is not easy to come by. Paul told Timothy that even if you're a perfect minister... It is still dependent on God's will whether those that you're dealing with ever repent and are able to recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him at his will. Don't you dare say, I'll repent later when I want to change and get right with the Lord again, but I'd like to try sin for a little while. That is a delusion. How do you know you're going to live long enough? How do you know God's going to be merciful enough? And how do you know you're going to get that repentance? Esau repented. How much good did it do him? Judas repented. How much good did it do him? The generation in the wilderness repented. How much good did it do them? God could leave you in that sin. Don't you dare talk to yourself that way. I can always repent. When I wish to change, listen, the thought of foolishness is sin. The very thought of such a ridiculous approach to God's law is sin in itself. Proverbs 24, 9. God doesn't hold out the opportunity to repent forever. The Lord Jesus Christ in Revelation chapter 2, verses 21 through 23, said that that woman Jezebel, that prophetess, he gave her a space to repent. 
And because she hadn't in that space, he was going to throw her and her children to bed and kill them. We can't presume on things like that. Proverbs 29.1 says, He that being often reproved hardeneth his neck shall suddenly be destroyed in that without remedy. There's no remedy for it. We do teach that the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ shed by the Son of God has purchased forgiveness for us. But you cannot presume on that forgiveness. You cannot presume on repentance. It takes a broken and a contrite heart for God to hear your prayer. Those are the sacrifices with which he's well pleased. 1 John 1, 9 is not a mantra that works from a dead heart that's committed to doing evil. You can't quote the words and have the effect. Those words have to come from a soul that is broken and a spirit that is contrite and is on its face groveling for mercy. And that is not easy to come by. And a person that would ever presume to sin because they think they're going to do that later, I doubt if they've ever repented truly. They don't know what real repentance is. And the reason I'm so serious about this is our, our hearts are able to generate lies like that. And we presume on the grace of God. Jude tells us that there are men that had crept into the church in Jude's day. And they're in the church in our day that turned the grace of God into lasciviousness. They use grace to justify wicked living. Remember how we started this morning? The grace of God that hath appeared to all men teaches us some things. It teaches us to deny ourselves. To live godly, righteously, and soberly in this present world. I can always repent when I want to change. Once you sin... Satan and your deceitful heart will make repentance impossible without God's mercy. What did we read in Hebrews 3, 12 and 13? Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. See, sin would say to you, I can go ahead and sin, and then I'll repent afterwards. After I've tasted this particular sin, I'll repent afterwards. But sin is deceitful, and it hardens your heart. And sin is never content with itself. It wants to add brothers and sisters to it until you have a life full of sin, and you will not be seeking repentance. You cannot go into sin. You cannot give place to the devil and think that you're going to have the influence of the Holy Spirit on the other side of that to lead you to repentance. You will have grieved and quenched the Holy Spirit by that time. I don't know what lies you tell yourself. I would presume that you tell yourself all of these at various times. And there's so many more. Draw nigh to God, and He will draw nigh to you. That is one fabulous promise. That the God of heaven, the true and living God, Jehovah, I am that I am, our creator, who inhabits eternity and whose name is holy and his name is jealous, will draw nigh to us if we draw nigh to him. But he tells us how we have to draw nigh to him. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners. And that wasn't addressed to the Philistines. That was addressed to the beloved brethren that James wrote. Purify your hearts, ye double-minded. This day... This day I have asked you, and I've tried to warn you from the Bible and myself, 
that if we have a double heart, we had better get it purified. Pure gold is 24 karat. That's 99.99%. Just round it off at 100% pure gold. If your ring says 18, it's, not, it's only three quarters gold. If your ring is 22, it's not pure. If your ring is 10, don't even call it gold. 10 karat is what I meant. Purify your hearts. That means we want pure gold in our hearts of 24 karat, all dedicated to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because we are double-minded by nature. We want the things of God's Word, and we want the things of this world at the same time. And the Lord Jesus Christ said, no man can serve two masters. James said, if you're a friend of the world, you are the enemy of God. And, And you've heard that so many times from me, but here I am again. These are the delusions that we say to ourselves that are lies, and then we believe them, and they lead us to live carnal, lazy, slothful, so-so Christian lives when we should be sold out like the Apostle Paul. Psalm 119, 113. It's where we started. Here's where we end. I hate vain thoughts. And instead of making those thoughts the thoughts of the apostles of the Mormon church, in the Book of Mormon or in the book Doctrines and Covenants, make those thoughts the thoughts that rise up in your heart that leads you away from keeping the Word of God and loving Jesus Christ with your whole heart. I hate vain thoughts, but thy, but thy law do I love. Amen. May the Lord bless each of us to love the law of God and measure all of our thoughts by it and bring our thoughts into captivity to the obedience of Jesus Christ. We are his children, redeemed with the blood of his Son. And he has saved us that we would be zealous of good works. May the Lord bless us to be a people of good works. And that draw nigh to him and he draws nigh to us. Amen. Amen.